This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 28, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. How the United States conducts itself globally has obvious implications for freedom at home. Doug Bandow, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, argues that the challenge to create a foreign policy for a free society is a continuous one. He spoke at Cato University in August. It's one of those issues when one thinks of a free society that isn't always obvious. What should a foreign policy be? What is a foreign policy for a free society? What is a foreign policy for a republic? And it's impossible to get away from foreign policy. Presidents like to run on domestic issues. Bill Clinton was elected. Uh, his campaign slogan was, it's the economy, stupid. You know, who cares if George W. Bush is, or H.W. Bush is a war hero and won the Iraq war? My goodness, you know, let's talk about the economy. Certainly, uh, Barack Obama, when he ran for office, his focus was domestic policy. He came in in the midst of economic crisis. He had a health care bill he wanted to pass. But what you find is it's virtually impossible. You look around the world today, we're very busy. Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Russia, China, you know, on and on it goes. And the events of 9-11 certainly demonstrated how foreign policy can come home to the United States. And if we look uh, today, you know, we're at an you know, important juncture when it comes to countries like Syria, and we don't know quite where this administration is going. We could find ourselves in yet another war. And I think it's a challenge for us, because in many ways, American uh, force structure, American deployments, the American military remains in many ways tied to containment. That is, we had a fairly clear policy for most of the Cold War. You know, the evil empire collapsed back in 1989, and then the question is now what? And we're still somewhat dealing with that. Uh, when the wall fell, when the Soviet Union dissolved, Colin Powell, then secretary or uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, commented, you know, I'm running out of enemies. I'm down to Fidel Castro and Kim Il-sung. And uh, while Cuba and North Korea are evil, they weren't much of a replacement for the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, Maoist China, and everything else. The question then is, what do you do in that world? What are your alliances for? What is your military for? I think that's really where we're stuck today, is still dealing with that roughly a quarter century after the wall fell. And the challenge of kind of constructing a foreign policy for a free society, I think, is you know, heightened by 9-11. Now, there was a sense of American invulnerability. The U.S. had not really been attacked at home or had war at home since 19, 1865. Now, there was Pearl Harbor. The Japanese sent some balloons over that hit the mainland. But for the most part, the U.S. didn't have the kind of war in the homeland that other countries have had until going back to the Civil War. Now, Europeans are quite used to this kind of conflict, other countries as well. And what we found in 9-11 was suddenly thousands of dead on our home, homeland. And the, the prospect of future being far worse, if you marry terrorism with weapons of mass destruction, one can imagine you know, the kind of carnage and what, what could follow. Then the question, though, is you know, does our force deployment, does our structure today actually meet this need? And what should that policy be for a democratic republic? At times, I worry you know, the discussion about foreign policy misses the fact that, yes, we want to defend ourselves, but we have to remember it is a democratic republic that we are defending. It's a free society, that we have to ensure that our mode of defense for our society doesn't undercut the very values that make our society so important and so uh, you know, such a place to live. During the Cold War, foreign policy was easy. You know, more or less from 1945 to 1989, you can argue about exactly when the Cold War started and exactly when it ended. Nevertheless, foreign policy was relatively e easy. You know, Ronald Reagan, I think, correctly referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. It certainly was evil. Tens of millions of people perished. Tens of millions of people went through the gulag. 
And this is a country that expanded its power into Eastern Europe, was threatening, was worrisome, at times allied with, at times you know, not quite so allied with the Maoist China. But nevertheless, you look around the world from an American standpoint, from a European standpoint, there is that sense of a central puppeteer that the US had to deal with. You had local and regional threats. Everything was tied back to a potential hegemonic threat. And foreign policy, for the most part, was focused on that. You had a set of alliances. You had forced, uh, you know, bases around the world. You had forces around the world. You had a large military, far larger military during kind of nominal peacetime that we had ever had before. Previously, we would ramp up Civil War, World War I, and then ramp down. Basically, after World War II, while the force came down from the 13 million men who were under arms to fight the, uh, the Nazis and the Japanese, we still had a much larger military than traditional in our uh, history. So the question then is when the Soviet Union disappears, when the evil empire disappears, now what do you do? And there were a lot of attempts to come up with something kind of to replace that, and we're kind of in that today. If you read some of the analyses, people talk about you know, the great dangers in the world, but quite honestly, there are dangers in the world, but none of them are the same as the Soviet Union with nuclear missiles, which we could imagine a nuclear exchange. None of them equate with the Red Army that could take over Western Europe. None of them equate with the Red Navy floating around the Pacific. You know, what we face today is a very different kind of world than we faced uh, during the Cold War. And it's important as we think about foreign policies to remember the costs of foreign policy. In Washington, as you know, Tom referred to the, uh, the District of Corruption, you know, this is a very incestuous place and it revolves around power. And quite frankly, if you want to be involved in the process, you know, it's very rewarding to want an expansive American role. You want to go to conferences in Europe, you don't go to conferences in Europe by suggesting the Europeans should defend themselves. I've written a lot on Korea and the South Koreans for some very strange reason have not been impressed when I've suggested maybe they should spend more on their own defense. As they've told me, they have other needs to take care of. They much prefer to have us to take care of them. This is a city that kind of rewards that kind of engagement, especially if you happen to be in power. You know, imagine, compare the Secretary of State of the United States to being the foreign minister of, oh, I don't know, Italy. You know, who gets better treated? Who can wander around the world telling the rest of the world what they think and what they should do? The foreign minister of Italy, as far as I can tell, doesn't have much to do. Secretary of State is very busy wandering the world trying to bring peace and settlements and you know, instructing the rest of the world. So this is a city that kind of really emphasizes the notion that expansive foreign policy is a very good thing. But it's important to think about what the costs of foreign policy are, that that kind of an expansive foreign policy does not come cheap. The first is a military budget. I think we have to view the defense budget, or I think more accurately, the military budget is the price of your foreign policy. The worst thing you can do is have an expansive foreign policy and not have the force structure to back it up. You know, if you're going to put people into uniform, they have to have the force, they have to have the numbers, they have to have the equipment to do what you want them to do. The more you want them to do, the more you have to spend. The U.S. today spends around $700 billion on the military. You know, if you look at, compared to the rest of the world, we're something like 45% of the rest of the world. Dramatic numbers. And that is primarily because most of our military is focused on offense, that is projection of power, not defense. We demonstrated on 9-11 we weren't very good, actually, at defending the homeland. Indeed, despite the fact we had a Department of Defense, they came up with the Department of Homeland Security, which is viewed as separate from the Department of Defense. Much of what our Department of Defense does is actually defends other countries. It's not clear that, in fact, defending other countries is necessarily the same as defending the US. 
So your foreign policy is going to determine how much you want to spend. And I worry today much of the talk about defense budget is being driven by budget concerns. They matter, but the you want to start with foreign policy. You don't want to just you know, cut your defense budget and keep your foreign policy, because then you're out of whack and you endanger your personnel. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. This speech was taken from his speech at Cato University in August. You can attend the next round of Cato U by visiting our website, cato.org.